To start this episode, I called up a handful of dealers who back in 2012 decided to join us on an incredible adventure by seeing what would happen if we brought an international contemporary art fair out onto the beach. This is José Bienvenu from José Bienvenu Gallery in Chelsea. My name is Andrew Rafis, and I am the owner of Andrew Rafis Gallery here in Chicago. This is Steve Turner. I'm in Los Angeles. The name of my gallery is Steve Turner. Well, I am Cindy Rucker, and I am the owner-director of Cindy Rucker Gallery on the Lower East Side in New York. Stephen Sachs, Bitforms Gallery. Hi, I'm Andrew Freiser with Fredericks and Freiser, and we're in our gallery on 536 West 24th Street. I asked each person what makes them love traveling every year to Miami Beach and what their first impressions were in the early years of the fair. I first saw the tent for Untitled the night before installation. I arrived from Los Angeles and I wanted to just go see what this tent would look like on the beach. And as I was walking on Ocean Avenue, all of a sudden I saw this giant tent and I think there was just a little bit of lighting inside and I traversed the sand and got to a doorway where I could peek inside. And it was just this most amazing structure, you know, surrounded by sand. I could hear the waves in the background. I mean, I'm literally on the beach. I don't get to enjoy the water or the actual sand, but the light has an effect on you in a different way than canned lights or being in the convention center. The main thing I love is the lights, the tents. beautiful ocean, the blue, and it's pretty mesmerizing. From day one, it it always had a really great vibe and a good energy and a good feeling. No, but that's the beauty of Miami. If you're not in a convention center, you can really spend the day at the fair and not leave with a headache. And how each gallery takes advantage of their trips to the beach in the city of Miami. I love that it seems every year on the Sunday when I arrive and we're about to install, there is this huge party that's literally next to the tent on the beach uh-huh. that's been going on and I've yet to figure out what it's for or why but it looks amazing and I love 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 that it's fun to be on the beach now I have like a little bit of a tradition with some folks to like have breakfast one morning and take a group swim I did bring a beach chair into my booth and I did do the beach thing and everyone's out and they're fabulous and like having so much fun street art pieces and the windwood walls there's a Cuban restaurant very near the fair that we went to a lot yeah it's the same touristy thing I'm sure everyone says like Joe Stone Crab (laughs) I always have to have a dinner Joe Stone Crab and the appeal of an international audience on any given day you end up talking to people from everywhere I have a client from Italy who doesn't speak English I don't speak much Italian, but he and I both speak Spanish a little bit. So we speak Italian, American, Spanish. It's a beautiful thing, and everyone laughs when they hear us talk, but we totally understand each other. It's essential to reach an international market and increase kind of exposure and our reputation there. You have like all different stratas and groups of people and people from everywhere. One of the great things about fairs, and Miami is kind of king among them, is we get to see our dealer friends. Almost all my really memorable experience have been with other dealers. That never happens unless you're traveling. And what it is like to be a visitor. It's a fun city to go to at the end of the year, to be very busy at a fair that runs more days than most fairs do, to like go in feeling one way and come out feeling even better. Why wouldn't anybody not want to leave Chicago for a warmer place? Um, And I think now, if I ever ended up not going to Miami in December, my whole ontology would probably be thrown off. Hello, and welcome to the Untitled Art Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Schmidt. 
Untitled Art Podcast is the new iteration of Untitled Radio, a program that innovates upon the customary art fair talks by providing a different dynamic and depth for interviews and panel discussions, adding performances, audio-based artwork, music, and playlists by artists, curators, and art world professionals, all presented at Untitled Art Fairs in Miami Beach and San Francisco. Starting in the late 19th and early 20th century with the salons in Paris and London, and developing with the regional, national, and then global biennials and exhibitions throughout the development of modern and contemporary art, art lovers and patrons have been traveling en masse to view and collect art. Art Cologne set the stage for art fairs as we know them starting in 1967, and now just half a century later, Millions of people travel globally to scope out cutting edge in contemporary art. Almost every time we attend an art fair, we are visitors, witnesses, and participants in the phenomenon of globalization. During Untitled's annual fairs in Miami Beach and San Francisco, we see thousands of visitors traveling from over 100 countries. Our exhibitors, from over 40 different countries, have come to present artists hailing from almost every nation in the world, metropolis within an international culture, or subculture expanded worldwide technologically. Traveling and seeing the world from the eyes of a visitor always provides a new perspective, a quality that art also provides. In a way, whenever we are viewing art, we are visitors. Visitors into the world of the art and its time travel possibilities, visitors in the city which exhibits the art fair or exhibition. Guy de Maupassant once said, travel, like dreams, is a door that opens from the real world into a world that is yet to be discovered. On this episode of the Untitled Art Podcast, we will travel through time, through the archives of Untitled Radio, to explore programs that comment on the nature of voyage, travel, displacement, and discovery. As we get further into this episode, we'll also explore the obstacles that global travel introduces to contemporary art and investigate how an audio-based format like this podcast can work to both combat its 21st century problematics and transcend physical and geographic boundaries. Untitled Radio was originally created as a form of programming that would be accessible to all, whether or not they were physically present at the fair. It also provided us with opportunities to work with artists, musicians, and other performers who, in some cases, were unable to leave their home countries in order to participate in the fair. So throughout this episode, we'll discover new definitions of what travel might mean in a recently globally connected society. We'll travel through this episode in five chapters, and we'll also include a fragmentary segment called World Music, which continues and weaves throughout each chapter, going around the globe in music. Untitled Radio received contributions from artists, composers, musicians, and record producers from five different continents and allowed listeners to experience the culture and values of another. Throughout this episode, we'll be playing music by Miriam Banani from Morocco and New York, Hassan Hajaj, Morocco, Hector Espasas, Puerto Rico, Sadra Baniasadi, Iran, and Easter from Germany, among others. Live playlists, uh, live mix, rec- 
recorded simultaneously in two cities uh, by one person, meaning that this is being live recorded in Rabat, Morocco, and Miami, Florida. You can hear sounds from Morocco while maybe running into me somewhere in Miami. This is a track from Oran, Algeria by Sheikh Mamidou.
Miriam Benani is a Moroccan-born artist currently living and working in New York, yet occupies and retains her North African identity and explores this duality through her art. She proves, in this playlist, created for the fair in Miami Beach 2017, that she can occupy two spaces and places in this world at once. This brings us to Chapter 1, Visitor Economy. In Miami Beach 2017, Untitled invited the Puerto Rican nonprofit Kilometro and Bogota-centered artist collective Carne to present a daily radio hour. They invited the San Juan-based curator Marina Reyes-Franco to speak about a line of research that has brought her to countries throughout the Caribbean to investigate the visitor economy and its influence on contemporary artists and their economic conditions. The term that I've been focusing on is called the visitor economy. And when I started doing research on that, there's a foundation in Puerto Rico that is using that term. And they have commissioned a lot of studies to kind of lobby the government to change certain laws or to enact certain laws that would enable like certain business partners or investors to move into Puerto Rico. And that's how I became aware of it. But when I started doing research on it, it turns out that visitor economy, like quote unquote, it's something that is mostly prevalent in Australian, basically former British Commonwealth of the UK. The visitor economy is how the visitor impacts the economy of a place, but it can be like medical tourism, educational tourism, it can be religious tourism. It really just branches out into everything because then you have groups that are lobbying for hospitals to become like destinations instead of being medical centers. It's absurd, yeah. In the context of the crisis in Puerto Rico, I mean, we've been in an economic (laughs) death trap black hole for 10 years now. And that has been seen as the way out. For example, they just passed these laws, Act 20 and Act 22 in 2009, in which American investors are enticed to go and move to Puerto Rico. You establish residency in Puerto Rico, you only have to pay, I think it's like 0% in capital gains and 4% tax overall. Because you're a resident of Puerto Rico, you don't pay federal taxes either. So it's like it's a legal tax evasion scheme. It's solely dependent on us staying a colony. So these ideas for economic development kind of get us out of the depression are completely dependent on us like belonging to the U.S. and prolonging our colonial uh, dependency problem. So it's never about creating capital. It's about basically developing this service class, the service economy of like waiters and baristas and you know, fancy cocktail makers. Can you even call it a depression if it's constant? It's, it's a depression because it's been going on for 10 years. We just had a visit this year from uh, Joseph Steiglitz, the economist, like Nobel Prize winner. He gave this, I don't know, it's not masterclass, but he, he gave a speech. He was invited by the Center for the New Economy. And he said, you guys keep calling it a recession, but it's been going on for 10 years. Like, it's a depression. She speaks about how tourism is shaping the way artists are making their work in the Bahamas. So in the Bahamas, they have this project, it's called The Current. It's directed by John Cox, who's also an artist. He ran an artist space. And The Current is hosted at the Bahamar Resort. And Bahamar went bankrupt a couple of years ago. It's a gigantic complex. They have like four hotels inside Bahamar, administered by different companies. So there's a Hyatt, and there's another one that's like run by CCA, which is like a Chinese corporation of America. It's huge. There's another one that's $20,000 a night. Wow. The way that it was described to me was like, this is like Oprah level guests. It was very central to the idea of Bahamar to have everything be decorated 
by Bohemian artists. So you have casino art, and you have like poolside <laughs> art, and you have sculptures. They've put so much money into this that they're obviously like really shaping the way that art is being produced because they are producing work that is literally just for the walls in the in the casino. I want to see what what happens there. It's been going on for for years now. The problem is like there was a local investor. Or, I mean, he was at least the one who was like getting the money from other people. Right. But it was run by a Bahamian. I forget his name. But it went under, and I think it was closed for almost like two or three years. Like, construction stopped. And it was this huge elephant in the, in the country. And then the Chinese Corporation of America stepped in, and they are running things. So it's finally working. Like, the hotel is functional, casino, restaurant, everything. But they're still finishing. And in the rooms, there are up to... 14 individual pieces by Bahamian artists. Per room? Per room. Photos, uh, prints, sculptures, little boxes. I don't know about the quality of it all, <laughs> but it's a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, they're spending so much money and they're giving space to so many artists that it is definitely impacting the way that you know, Bahamian artists are going to look for decades and continues to explore how North American military detritus has influenced the cultural landscape on the beaches throughout the Caribbean. There's a couple of reasons why I was interested in Panama. One of them being that there's a Panama Canal, and like what happens before and after, that such a huge American presence there. Coming from Puerto Rico and being interested in like the post-military spaces that we are inhabiting, visiting, like going to the beaches in Vieques that were bombed out and like our understanding of what paradise looks like is actually like this bombed out landscape created by military intervention. And also these ideas of how to develop these places that have been abandoned for so long. So we have, for example, Roosevelt Roads in Puerto Rico, which is in the southeast around Ceiba. It's just this huge piece of land that has been left in ruins. The buildings are completely destroyed and like filled with bats and there's nothing going on there. But there's this idea of creating it and catering to like, high-end tourism and like, creating spaces for you know, yachts. So the Puerto Ricans that could benefit from that are either super rich and you know, in cahoots with, the, with those people, or they will be in the service industry serving as well, these guys. So I was interested to see what happened in Panama after they regained access to the Panama Canal Zone. I saw that it was always a very segregated place. While the Americans were there, they basically imposed Southern-style segregation rules in the zone. So you would have like housing for black people who worked on the zone, and then like housing for the white administrators. One of the things that I was surprised by, or maybe not so much, is that the kind of black people houses, they look like public schools in Puerto Rico. Really? Yes. So I was like, I see myself there. Yeah. Then it's like, you understand that it's the American view of the other.
The music you were just listening to was by the Puerto Rican artist and DJ Hector Arce Espasas, who DJed live during the opening night of the fair in Miami Beach 2017. Moving on to Chapter 2, Virtual Journey, we navigate the terrain of Sarah Ludi's War Zone, a field recording in Second Life. In Second Life, visitors travel to an online virtual world, exploring terrains and scenarios through their self-designed representations of themselves called avatars. Ludi explored this virtual world, recording her own virtual version of a field recording. By removing visual cues, Ludi creates a visceral experience, one where the viewer must listen and imagine a world outside their own. Hi, this is Sarah Ludi, and for Untitled Radio, I will be playing a field recording I made earlier this year titled Warzone. Warzone is a region in Hattusha City where people get together and engage in melee combat. I first read about Warzone in a destination guide. It was listed as number three on the recommendation list and had a cool ad, so I decided to go. I first arrived in a castle that was surrounded by a moat and that's surrounded by mountains. And there was this real nice music playing in the background. I thought I was in a Zen garden or somewhere like it. It was very peaceful. But soon after I arrived, I could hear sword fighting from a nearby battle. And the sounds grew louder and louder, and the battle moved closer and closer. So I decided to leave the castle and to see if I could find somewhere that was very quiet. I headed towards the mountains and on the other side of them I found the ocean. I dove into the ocean thinking if I went all the way to the bottom I'd find a quiet place. But on my way down my torso got stuck in a crevice and I died. And so I had to be reborn in the castle and I decided to go back to the ocean thinking I could get away with it this time, but the same thing happened and I got stuck. So that didn't work out. And the second time I was reborn, I went the other way, down this long corridor, and ended up coming across this deep voice, this deep, heavy breathing. And it started following me and it got intense real fast, so I got out of there, left the castle, came across this large water fountain. I dove in, and the sound of the water completely drowned out everything else, and I had finally found my quiet place.
نبیند کودکی کسیب هست او پیاز گنده را ندهد زده است You're now listening to Sadria Baniasadi's playlist Love Songs to Chapter 3, Cargo Talk. During the 2015 edition of the fair in Miami Beach, we invited artist Mayan Strauss in conversation with curator Prem Krishnamurthy to discuss the Container Artist Residency, a unique artist-in-residence program that took place on board commercial cargo ships in 2016. For the love of radio and cargo ships, Prem and Mayan formatted their panel in the style of NPR's legendary weekly program, Car Talk. So we're going to dive right into their talk. You seem to have an affinity for water. Yeah, I like water. Uh, I mean, I mean, uh, why, why do you like water? What's water mean to you? 
It's just a, it's a magical form. I okay, all right. So if I had a bucket of water right now and poured it on your head, would you be happy? I would not be happy. No. Uh, okay. But if I had a big bucket of hot water and I dropped you in it, would you be happy? If they were not too hot. Okay, and if I took you and we shot you in a cannon out into the ocean about 150 yards in, would you be happy? Yes. Okay, okay, well, good, good, we're getting somewhere. One of the things about Cargo Talk is that we like to have different guests of all walks of life here to talk to us about the things that matter. That is cargo, infrastructure, shipping, commerce, and criticality. Those don't all start with C, but if they did, we'd be on a real alphabetical theme. Right. So, let's get back to water. So you just started this crazy, crazy container artist residency program. How did you get into your head that you were going to go and stick yourself on a ship? As I understand it, this is a container. You, you're, okay, so we got a big cargo ship, and there are all these shipping containers. And then you, as a little artist, are trapped on this little thing for weeks and weeks and weeks, going across the ocean, trying to figure out what to do on this ship as an artist. So... How the hell did you get this idea in your head, Mayan? I was in grad school where you're supposed to produce the, the most important artwork that you're producing. For That's the pressure that you get in grad school. So the most important, okay, the most you're important to come back to, to the, the second year with like the most amazing body of work that would determine your career. So basically you're in art school and they're like, hey, why don't you become Picasso? Right? Is that what it's like? Tell me about it. I never went to art school. I don't have an MFA. You know, like, I never went into debt for this stuff. So tell me, like, what do they say to you when you're there in art school? You were at Yale, of all places. Come on, name it, name it. Basically, there's this pressure that everything that you do in your second year is, like, this is the work that you're going to come out to the world with. It's very stressful and very self-absorbed all this time, and you're trying to think, what would work and I was paralyzed especially when I was, didn't have money to even think about where I'm going to go to make this work as a photographer uh, I went to Israel and I was sitting on the desk trying to figure out how I'm going to get back to the second year to buy a flight which is like over a thousand dollars and I was looking at everything you know like cookies on the table and they were like coming from the United States and all these things that traveled and I was like how, how is it so hard for me to travel how is it so many hours of work that I have to pay in order to cross this distance right or, I mean if a brownie started to pay people to travel I'd like to see that now that would be that would be some pretty interesting exactly, like entertainment the, the cookies you know they, they got there they just like flew so what, what's the difference really so I figured you know there must be a way the idea was already kind of starting before I left, the, the idea of traveling on a freight ship, which in the past was something that people would would do if they were looking for a cheap way to travel. It's like you could hop on a freight ship somehow and, uh, and travel across the ocean. So I thought there must be a way. And I thought it would be interesting to travel in this path that is not like offered to you. When they ask, you know, business or pleasure, it's like what you always have to be either for business or for like a work, very specific reason, or for pleasure as a tourist to consume something. Or as a commodity. Yeah, so you're never really traveling as a commodity. You're never the cookie. Well, maybe you are. I mean, I mean, that's an interesting idea. Maybe anything, once you put it on a boat, it becomes a commodity. I mean, we can commodify labor. We know how to do that. We've been doing that for hundreds of years, at least. Why couldn't you be commodified as a person on and, a boat? And as an artist, your question makes sense because artists are commodifying themselves because essentially what they sell in the end is their, their brand. 
themselves in the form of art of objects. Well, we are we are here in an art fair of all places. Exactly. Here on the beach, where what we're looking at is products. I look around and I think all these artworks here. We got some big paintings. We got some sculptures. We got some videos. All of them had to get here somewhere. How'd they get here? They must have been on a ship somewhere. These commodities. And how those artists get here? Maybe they were on the ships too. Now that would be a next thing. What if we could pack up every artist in a crate with them, going to the art? They show up at the art. Fair, and then they pop out of the crate and start talking about their work. What do you think about that, Mayan? That would be horrible. <laughs> okay, let's get back to you, Mayan. No, no, no. But there's a project with you know, like the, the idea that people and commodities are traveling in similar ways. I think it's something that is going to happen more and more. There's interest for people in the last few years to travel on container ship because the boundaries between all these distinctions are getting blurred. And a lot of people want to travel on container ship out of curiosity because they understand it's something that's essential, interesting, that is supposed to be accessible, maybe. Then Prem asked Mayan about her own experience traveling on the boat. Tell me where we are. We're, why don't you paint a scene for me? Where are we? We're on a boat. What does it look like? Does it look like the, the Trump Tower? Or what, what kind of place are we talking about? Well, first of all, one of the most, the strongest experience or one of them was actually boarding on the ship. You know, the port is a really intense environment, very loud, very industrial. You feel like you're in the 19th century. People shouting, bells ringing, there's commotion, there's heavy machinery. In that, you're like with your suitcases and some guys pulling them in, and you're about to sail to the ocean. (laughs) Really overwhelming. And I got there, and nobody knows what I'm doing here. Who am I? Why is there this girl like running around our work environment? What's the deal? So it was a very strange experience, and the ship is very modest environment, to say the least. So you're an artist. You show up to go on a boat, to go on a shipping container. What did you do to prepare yourself for this? Did you talk to other people who had gone on a shipping container? Do you have any idea what the hell you were getting into? No, no, I didn't. I kind of wanted to be surprised. I talked to some people at the company, you know, I said, what do I need to know? They told me, the first thing they told me was, when you're going to sit down for for a meal, for lunch or dinner, just check before you sit down so you're seated in the right place. What, is, the, what do you mean by that? One of the that? only instructions that what I does got. That mean? Uh, because if you sit in the captain's seat, they're going to punch you in the gut. Or if you like, kind of like mess around with the hierarchy in this in this setting, it's like okay. Not so good. Okay, so we're on a boat. I mean, I'm thinking Moby Dick right now. Like I'm thinking <laughs> we got Captain Ahab. You know, we got Ishmael. No, I mean, tell me, like, what's the crew like? How many people are on this boat with? So uh, on the ship that I traveled on was 27 crew members working in the engine, working in the kitchen, working on the control bridge, working all around the ship. So you have people from different nationalities, different backgrounds. They're working nine months of the year, usually, at least. They are basically in this sea environment, far from their homes most of the year, isolated. Does that sound like a fun job? Uh, I don't know. I don't think it's fun but i think it's like you know how people say do you like new york and they say like i don't know yeah it's home and maybe you don't like it so much but you forgot that there's any the full interview between prem and mayan is archived on untitledartfairs.com people are you ready people are you ready 
This is my reggae from Sahara And another song from Afri, 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 Africa Fekia Where you say? The Tirgit don't like the border Where you say? This is my lost, last message Lost, last message Lost, last message Until when will they eat our bread? Until when your bins will be full and our pockets empty? And our pockets empty? Yeah! Is it so hard? To be a man, is it so easy to be selfish? Is it so hard to be a man? Is it so easy to be selfish? The Sahara, fi harijal, fi harijal. That was a snippet of a collaborative playlist between artists Hassan Hajaj and DJ Rush. It leads us to our fourth chapter, Around the World in Art Fairs. For this chapter, I'd like to revisit a discussion we presented during that San Francisco edition on the West Coast, in which we invited legendary collectors Mira and Don Rubel from Miami to join in conversation with Deborah and Andy Rappaport, the San Francisco-based collectors and founders of the vital Minnesota Street Project. The discussion was aimed at the role of contemporary art in gentrification and urbanization, although we approach many other topics throughout the panel. Both the Rubels and the Rappaports travel internationally, following their passion for contemporary art, but they are both also very focused in their local networks. Near the end of the conversation, Mira shared some inspiring words about her feelings towards approaching a happy compromise between the amazing opportunities that globalization brings to contemporary artists, while still paying attention to the local effects. So we'll tune right into the conversation. When people say, another art fair, it's like, oh God, does the world need another art fair? Do the galleries really need to spend the money to go to another art fair? Curiously enough, just like young gallerists and just like crazy people like the Rappaports and us, the art fair actually brings the outside in, even if it's just for one week. People go to places that they would ordinarily not go but for an art fair. So it brings the gallerists, it brings the artists. As far as I'm concerned, there aren't enough art fairs because from my point of view, I want to go to more cities, not fewer cities. I want to go to places I've never been. And the art fair brings me there because not only do I come with Don, but I know that other friends that we can share in this experience together wherever we go. So whether it's Miami and now San Francisco and Los Angeles, and we go Brazil, we went to Sao Paulo, we went to Rio, we go to Cologne, we go to Madrid, we go to Paris. You can say, oh, too many art fairs. Well, are there too many cities in, in the world? No, there are as many as there are. And the art fair pulls us there in a very meaningful way because not only does it pull us, but it pulls all of you, and then we come together, and it's like the clan gets together in all these places with incredible artists and an opportunity 
to see each other and, of course, for us to collect and to have the flavor of the local. Not to mention so many galleries that we met in China now come to art fairs in the United States. We may not go to a remote uh, city in China anytime soon, but you can be sure that we'll run into that gallerist again in these art fairs. So it keeps our relationships alive with the more art fairs that are. When we set out to do what we were doing, we said, you know, we need to just solve a problem in San Francisco right now. I like this message. I don't like this exclusive local stuff. (laughs) And I'll tell you why. It goes back to what I said before. The only way we're gonna understand people from around the world, there's no better way to understand the human being We have to have a broad vision of that. If you're open to the world, the world is open to you. When we started going to China, so many collectors, by the way, we traveled, we visited 100 studios in China. We went to China not to promote American art. We went to learn about Chinese art and collect Chinese art. When we first went to China, every collector we met was collecting Chinese art, and they kept talking about it like it was their patriotic duty to collect only Chinese art. I'm saying buy art to the world, buy it wherever you see it, fall in love with artists, and just don't stay in your own cocoon, because then you're only learning and talking to yourself. So I respect that you should, look, everyone should go, but your facilities is not only showing, San Francisco artists, your galleries, I walk there today, they're showing art from around the world. And I think that's great. So when you go to to their incredible facility, you will encounter artists from all over the world. So let's keep it big and open, and the world is a beautiful place, and let's love each other. Mira, I could not agree with Soon after, Andy Rappaport chimes in with his equally inspiring perspective and definitely one of my favorite moments we've broadcast from the radio program. We think there is something that everyone in San Francisco can do to uh, support the arts in San Francisco, and that's buy art. Buy art made by local artists, buy art sold by local galleries, buy art from art fairs who have come here to San Francisco, buy art from galleries that are coming here from San Francisco, from elsewhere, to support the arts community, buy art at the art auctions put on by nonprofits in the city who are struggling, buy art. If we all bought more art, the arts community would be doing a lot better.
And now we've arrived at our final chapter, Seisman's Dilemma. As a counterpoint to some of the more utopic impulses presented in this episode on visitors, I wanted to explore the problematic effects that all this travel might have, not only within our industry, but environmentally and globally. This chapter is the only portion of this episode that doesn't come from the archives of Untitled Radio. Earlier this fall, William S. Smith of Art in America magazine published a crucial letter, which I've invited him to read here for this episode of the Untitled Art Podcast. The art world has a carbon problem. Long-haul air travel, the lifeblood of biennials and art fairs, and the means by which artists, curators, critics, and scholars connect with their counterparts around the world as a matter of routine, contributes to climate change, according to an online emissions calculator, a person traveling to both exhibitions from New York and back would generate more than seven metric tons of carbon, about half the average annual emissions of the South Korean and more than double the annual emissions of the average Brazilian. International travel is essential for career success, but it's also more than a professional obligation, comprising an integral part of a fashionable lifestyle. I've heard artists humbly brag about the hectic life of hopping from one airport to the next, and curators express pride in having dashed off another catalog essay in a departure lounge. Conspicuous mobility is a status symbol. Few figures understood the current global system of contemporary art like Harold Zeman, a peripatetic curator who worked well in nearly constant motion. Once an outlier in a field of stable museum professionals, Zeman developed globe-trotting ways that are now replicated on a vast scale by artists, arts professionals, and collectors. Internationalism remains one of the great strengths of contemporary art and a bulwark against rising nationalism. It's even possible to argue that cultural exchange fosters the sort of international cooperation and mutual understanding essential for global problem solving. Part of me wants to believe this, but another part of me, the part that remembers what it's like to attend an art fair, is more cynical. It's hard to defend the notion of a Brahmin class awarding ourselves a special dispensation to pollute because we have good intentions tucked away in our carry-ons. The art world's blasé acceptance of carbon-intensive behaviors replicates in miniature the global dynamics of climate change, whereby the wealthy produce vastly disproportionate warming emissions, exacerbating a problem that disproportionately affects the poor. And so he leaves us with these important questions. How can we mitigate the harmful effects of air travel without retreating from internationalism? Even acknowledging that there's a problem to be mitigated seems like an important step for art professionals with a romantic attachment to travel. But symbolic expressions of concern, which now proliferate, are inadequate. Flying around the world to discuss the problem of the Anthropocene or explore it in art can only amount to rhetorical hot air if literal planet-warming gases are produced in the process. Plenty of organizations will offset carbon emissions by funding environmental projects, and we should expect fairs and other commercial organizations to consider such trades a cost of doing business. But above all, it seems necessary to redefine what we mean by essential travel. Weaning the art world off regular flights may seem like an impossibility given the status quo, but the status of our planetary climate is already changing, whether we like it or not. I see a 
you were just listening to is from Easter, a band based in Berlin, which we first aired during that same edition of Untitled in San Francisco in 2017. Henry David Thoreau once said, it's not what you look at that matters, it's what you see. On this episode, visitors, you didn't need to see anything at all, but hopefully you could picture it all on your own. Whether you choose to travel or not, we hope you'll join us this winter in Miami Beach and San Francisco. And if you can't or won't be there physically, keep tuning in here and we'll continue to travel with new episodes in 2019. During the fairs this winter, we'll be broadcasting live, so you'll be able to participate from wherever you may be. With this podcast, One of our aims is to promote support and establish more opportunities to exhibit and distribute immaterial art, such as sound. Through Untitled Radio and moving forward with our podcast, we see radio and podcasting as a form that is relatively carbon emissions friendly. With the exponential proliferation of global connectivity, we must explore new terrains of communications and exhibition formats. Countless contributors were involved in the programs we heard today, and I'd like to give a special thanks to Justin Asher and Mnemonic Recordings for producing this episode, Adrian Olivares and Vicente Solis at Wynwood Radio in Miami, Aaron Harbour and Catherine from KGPC in San Francisco, Kea Duarte, our programming manager, as well as contributors to today's episode, including Miriam Banani and Signal, Carne, Kilometro and Marina Reyes Franco, Hector Arce Espasas, Sarah Ludi and Bitforms, Sadria Baniasadi and Dustin's Basement, Prem Krishnamurthy and Mayan Strauss, Easter, Mira and Don Rubel, Deborah and Andy Rappaport, and William S. Smith at Art in America magazine. And finally, a thanks to my team at the Untitled Art Fairs for joining in my belief that by tuning out, you can tune in. The original score you heard at the beginning and end of this episode are by Celia Hollander from the score for Madeline Hollander's performance, Mile, Untitled 2015. I'd like to end today's episode by quoting from John Cage. Wherever we are, what we hear is mostly noise. When we ignore it, it disturbs us. When we listen to it, we find it fascinating. So I'd like to invite you to keep on listening and think of listening 
as another way of looking. Tune in starting in 2019 with new episodes. We'll be traveling around the world bringing on new guests and contributors. In the meantime, we'll be podcasting live from the beach in Miami December 5th through the 9th and starting off the new year in San Francisco, podcasting live from Pier 35, January 18th to the 20th. Signing off, I'm your host, Amanda Schmidt, and I hope you'll join us again on the Untitled Art Podcast. Mm-hmm.